Relationships After TBI. Welcome to the 2019 Brain Injury Conference. Brain Injury Rehabilitation, the Health and Wellness Connection. Sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. Each year, an estimated 2.8 Americans sustain a traumatic brain injury and face a wide range of physical, functional, emotional, and social challenges. This course will focus on the importance of an individual's overall health, wellness, and rehabilitation and recovery. Topics will include personal identity, cognition and memory, maintaining relationships, and the capacity to return to fitness and other physical activities. In this lecture podcast, Dr. Kelly Kearns, neuropsychologist at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation presents Relationships After TBI. This presentation was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Wednesday, May 15, 2019, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Chester Campus, Chester, New Jersey. Interested in more conference lecture podcasts? Click on the playlist link listed in the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. Again, I'm Kelly Kearns. I'm going to talk about the impact of TBI on various roles and, and relationships after brain injury. I have no disclosures. And so what we're going to look at is we're, we're first going to think about the patient's perspective. So what does their journey look like? So what are some common psychological and behavioral changes that they experience after injury? We're then going to consider the ideas of grief and ambiguous loss after brain injury. Shift gears and then think about how the family is coping in the, in the caregiver perspective. And then also talk about typical changes in roles and relationships after brain injury. The response to head injury depends on the kind of head that was injured. What do you make of this? Any thoughts? No? Okay. So if we think about this literally, when we compare brains, there's a region in the brain, it's called Broca's area, it's housed in the left frontal lobe. So Broca's area is one speech production center. And, and Broca's area differs in its exact size and shape and location from brain to brain. So there's neuroanatomical variance between heads, which may account for some of these discrepancies that we see. Um, you also have to think about how a person was functioning before. So brain injury is always contingent upon a person's pre-existing cognitive structure and personality. Um, so how did the person cope with, with stress before? Did they use drugs and alcohol to cope with, with life stress prior? If so, you know, they had really underdeveloped coping skills and they're not going to fare very well now. Um, I'm going to give you an example to help illustrate this point. So this is a young gentleman, we'll call him Dan, he's in his early 20s, and prior to his injury he had a history of schizophrenia, paranoia, hallucinations. He was in a horrific motor vehicle accident in which he was driving and his mother and his girlfriend were killed. Um, he also sustained a severe traumatic brain injury, he had diffuse axonal injury, and as you uh, might think, he became extremely psychotic, extremely hypervigilant, highly paranoid. So brain injury turns up the volume 
on what was pre-existing. Not to mention he's grieving. He had two significant losses in his life. Um, so that further complicates the picture for him. Um, okay. And so the other thing in the context of this presentation is, is for Dan, his natural family was limited. He lost his mother, he lost his girlfriend. And you know, I treated him when he was on outpatient. I provided psychological uh, counseling for him. And so that was helpful. He was involved in our cognitive rehabilitation program. He um, was a return to work candidate. Um, you know, he, wa he, he wanted to be a plumber and through Division of Vocational Rehabilitation Services, he got back to work and he was working in the plumbing aisle at, at Home Depot. He was connected with Opportunity Project. So um, the point being that while his natural family was limited through way of connecting him with community resources, his natural family could be expanded upon and in, term, in turn he had better long-term prognosis. So um, not, about 90% of patients after TBI have some type of emotional distress. Um, and this, this can take a lot of different forms, but again, it's often contingent upon their baseline personality traits. Um, you know, depression, about 30% of patients with TBI have depression after. And people often ask, is this, na you know, nature, is this more organic, or is this because of what they're dealing with? And the answer is probably both. Um, but to help discern that a little bit more, you can think about the onset. So if it's a very acute onset and it starts right away after the brain injury, it's probably more organic. Whereas if it takes time to evolve and, you know, it's not till they go home and they realize, well, I'm not driving, I can't go back to school and I'm not working. It's more, it may be more of a reactive type depression. So sometimes it takes reality really setting in and, and hitting them for them to realize that, that things have changed and then you see mood symptoms. Um, you can see psychosis, it's more rare and, and probably um, having to do with their, their baseline personality um, traits. So let's think about the patient's journey in terms of how they're coping and how they are grieving. So one way to conceptualize this is using Kubler-Ross's grief cycle. So most of you are probably familiar with this, the stages of grief as pertaining to death of a loved one. So she talks about, and this model was de developed in 1969, um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Our patients experience a range of these emotions and they report experiencing you know, these, these reactions too. They, you know, there's denial, this um, disbelief, this uh, search for existential meaning. Why did this happen to me? Um, anger, bargaining perhaps with a higher power, depression and acceptance. But in the case of brain injury, uh, you know, I think it's inappropriate to ask them to accept, but we're having them sort of think about acceptance for a new, a new normal state for right now. It's different than, than death of a loved one, obviously. There's closure, you have a funeral, you um, sort of celebrate, you know, one's life. But in brain injury, there, you know, there's such ambiguity. Um, what's certain is that they will not be 100% of the, who they were. What's certain is that there has been a traumatic loss, it's pervasive, it's catastrophic. But with brain injury, things continue to improve. So the extent of what has been lost is uncertain. We, we don't know. And that ambiguity that they're having to deal with is, is hard. 
um, there has been losses. They have lost cognitive skill. They have lost physical functioning. Perhaps they have hemiparesis. There's emotional changing. Maybe they're more blunted now. So there, you know, there are losses that they're grieving, but the extent of what they have lost is unknown. So let's think about this idea of ambiguous loss or living loss. Um, Boss in 99 authored a book looking at this topic and what, what she's getting at is that the TBI survivor is physically present but lost in terms of their cognitive skill and, and their, their emotional state. So there's changes, there's loss, there's this incongruence and, and highly uh, discrepant state between physical presence and, and absence or altered um, self. And so that, that incongruence is, re, is really hard to deal with. And so this is really one of the most stressful types of losses experienced both by the family and, and the TBI survivor. And again, thinking about Kubler-Ross's model with acceptance and, and death, you know, people are allowed to you know, grieve completely through. There's closure in that process. There's no closure in this process. The grief process is frozen because the person is still physically present. Um, and so it's, it's challenging to deal with this ambiguity. Our brains do not like ambiguity. And so, you know, our, our hope and our, our work with them is really helping them find new meaning and new hope. And we want them to maintain hope by, by all means because hopelessness is the strongest predictor of suicidality. Um, I worked with a gentleman who, he was a, a tetraplegic and, and I worked with him in outpatient for, with psychotherapy and you know, I had to work with him on changing his goal from being able to walk again to being as independent as possible. Um, so that's, that's the type you know, of, of work that, that can be done is helping them change what they're hoping for and what, what their goals are. Uh, you know, some strategies to think about is that, you know, patients and their families really have to give up on the idea that there will be absolute closure. There, there will not be. This ambiguous loss is going to per persist as long as the person is alive. So being, uh, uh, being comfortable with unanswered questions, living with that um, ambiguity while still having a good life. So in doing so, you know, they have to hold these two opposing ideas in mind at the same time. And so one way to think about this is using both and thinking. So an example for you know, the survivor's perspective is, you know, I don't like this and I can have a good life anyways. Or you know, I'm both sad about my lost hopes and dreams and happy about some new. So think about, you know, we have a lot of our patients are these workaholics. So they're putting in over 60 hours a week and inadvertently neglecting other areas of their lives. So they're working so much prior to their injury that they're you know, not home to tuck their child in at night or read them a bedtime story. And these other areas of, of life are being, you know, inadvertently neglected. They have an injury and the silver lining might be this is an opportunity to reprioritize life's values. So an opportunity, a silver lining to provide more balance in life. So it's not just work. Now it's relationships and love and it's leisure and, and play. And maybe it's not return to work, but maybe it's volunteer. So it's an there is an opportunity if, if they can find it and when, when they're ready to find it. So let's shift gears now and think about the caregiver's perspective. So the caregiving literature often talks about these seasons of, of caregiver adaptation. 
and it, it moves from that crisis stage to the rehab stage to the new normal stage. So this crisis stage is, is right when the injury occurs to those early rehab days. And, and all of the, the family's energy is focused on medical stabilization and survival. So by way of that, all of their normal routines and rituals are, are totally put on, uh, on hold and are suspended. At this point, um, something to think about is about half of all caregivers experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Um, and this could be due to you know, seeing their, their loved one um, injured in a catastrophic way or seeing them in the intensive care unit being poked and prodded and intubated and all of that. But about half experience um, symptoms of post-traumatic stress. More common in women uh, caregivers and, and it tends to correlate with lower Glasgow coma scales, which, which makes sense. So moving on then to the, the rehab stage, um, this is when, you know, those early rehab stage, uh, rehab days to the person is, is being discharged home. A at this point, as you can imagine, all the family roles and routines are, are highly reorganized. So the person who normally pays the bills is in, you know, the acute, um, acute rehab uh, hospital. And so the loved ones have to pick up those tasks that they normally didn't do. What's important to think about from a psychological perspective is that expectations for recovery are very, very high at this point. So, you know, they're thinking, well, you know, I'm paying the bills right now, but when he gets home, you know, he's going to be able to pick that right up, no problem. Um, so, you know, the expectations are quite high. And then lastly, the new normal. So, you know, caregivers have, have a new normal um, as well. Um, and this is the lengthiest and most difficult phase. There's a lot of variability. Um, you know, formal treatment is ended, the person is, is reintegrating back into the community at this point. And this is when reality sets in. And this is when the expectations for, rec for a full recovery start to lower. And there's more of a realistic um, perspective. So brain injury is, is a family injury. This is one of the most difficult situations that a family is, is uh, faced with and must deal with. Um, I've had family members saying it's like bringing a stranger from the home from the hospital because their personality changes are that drastic and that different. Um, you know, this brain injury is dramatic. It, it occurs in the blink of an eye. There's no time for preparation versus something like Alzheimer's disease where it's a slow, gradual progression or decline. And people have time to, to plan and, and to prepare. With brain injury, they don't. Um, you know, we talked about how, how critical it is to think about how the person was functioning before, their cognition, their personality. It's equally important to think about how the family unit functioned before. Was there a lot of distress? Were they poor communicators? Was there abuse? You know, all of those things are important to think about now because, again, brain injury is, is turning up that volume. Um, and, and also, it's going to impact, uh, you know, the patient's experience and long-term outcomes. Uh, the family will not return to 100% of itself uh, either, um, you know, nor, nor will the, the patient. Those involved in new phases of the, of the relationship, so those who just had a baby, who are newlyweds, empty nesters, are going to have more difficulty um, you know, than those have more, who, have more established, um, who have more established perspectives or roles. Um, a study by Livingston, Livingstone uh, cited that 
um, the most emotional distress occurs three months to five years post-injury. And again, that makes sense because when they're in the hospital, reality has not set in, but it takes time. So when they're home, they're reintegrating the community, they're realizing the, the permanence and the, and the gravity of the impairment, and that's when distress occurs. Um, a study by Marsh and colleagues cited that behavioral problems, so if the person is more regressed, if they're more impulsive, this is um, a, a stronger predictor, predictor of caregiver burden than even if there's physical limitations or cogn cognitive deficits. So let's think about uh, specific relationship subtypes and brain injury. So I'm going to focus on couples and I'm going to focus on children. Um, so couples who previously kept things very, you know, separate before, the husband who did the bill paying, the wife who did the cooking, are going to have more difficulty after brain injury. Um, personality changes are really difficult for, for the spouse or the partner to deal with. They feel like they're in a relationship with a stranger. They feel confused, sort of wondering if this is what, you know, they want, they want going forward. This isn't really what I signed up for. There's longing for that other person, um, sadness and, and loss. There can also be guilt. So we have a, a gentleman our, on our unit right now who's um, physically aggressive and, and highly sexually disinhibited. And his wife feels just mortified by his behavior. She filled my desk with big, big goods the other day because she felt so guilty and embarrassed um, for his be behavior, which she had absolutely no, no control over. Um, and so, you know, that, that spouse, that partner is left to do all, all of the daily care, right? So there's um, dressing, grooming, bathing, showering, and, you know, there's that blurring of lines between being a caregiver and being, uh, being the spouse, and that can certainly have an impact on, on the sexual relationship as well. When we think about children, um, it's going to depend on how old the child is, how severe the injury was, and again, what that relationship was like prior. So how was the patient prior, how was the family functioning prior, and what was that parent-child diet like prior. Um, kids can be really confused and distant about the relationship. We have a woman on our, um, on our unit now, she's a, she's a severe disorder of consciousness patient, so she's in a coma state. And her four-year-old came and, and visited her um, for one, one of the first times, uh, facilitated by grandmother. And she brought two teddy bears with her. And when she left, she left one teddy bear at, at mommy's bedside and took the other one home. So as a way to kind of establish a sense of connection, almost in a parallel play manner. Um, you know, if kids who have parents with TBIs who have a lot of physical involvement, so physical impairments, that's going to be really impact that, that parent-child relationship. You know, kids want to get out, down on the floor and play with their cars, and, you know, mommy and daddy or daddy can't do that right now. Um, a, good, a good reference that I often give to um, patients with, with little ones, it's called the Astronaut Ballerina, and it's, it's public domain, it's a PDF, and it's a, it's a children's storybook, um, you know, with illustrations, um, and it just tells sort of a, a child's perspective of why mommy or daddy is having memory problems and how they can help, you know, um, sort of be, be involved in what they can do. So it's, it's a, it gives a nice perspective um, for, for a child. With brain injury, we know that um, if there's frontal lobe involvement, you know, patients can be more irritable, they're more edgy, they have a shorter fuse, and that can be really scary for children. 
let's think about specific cognitive impairments or specific emotional changes on, on relationships. So, you know, again, there can be anger, there can be unpredictable moods, and, um, you know, for anyone, we, we lash out, we're angry at those closest to us, so no different for somebody with, with a TBI. And it, but it's hard on the, on the receiving end to maintain a relationship with somebody who's, you know, explosive or angry all the time or has unpredictable moods. Um, with brain injury, if there's frontal lobe involvement, it's like somebody's poked holes in your filter and things you wouldn't have said before are coming right out. And so it, the things they say might be very blunt and abrasive and hurtful um, and that can impact the relationship. I think one of the, the biggest barriers is, is lack of insight. So, you know, with, with brain injury, especially if there's right hemisphere involvement or, or frontal lobe involvement, people can have something called anisognosia, which is denial of deficit or limited insight into their awareness. And so, you know, the brain does not let them see that there's been change. So they're not aware that they're having memory problems. They're not aware that they, you know, are acting differently. Sometimes they're not even aware of their own sort of, you know, physical um, limitations, which can pose a lot of, you know, safety uh, risks. But at any rate, so then you, it, it leaves you with this discrepancy between what the patient sees and what the family sees. And as you can imagine, that creates a lot of discord. Um, and, and the you know, family gets quite angry, you know, why don't you see this? Why don't you do something different? And um, I, I find that a lot of times providing education to the family and saying, you know, they're not intentionally being defiant. They're not intentionally not looking or, or seeing this. The brain doesn't let them see. And, and helping them reframe lets the family take a, a, a different perspective. And I think that, that can help a lot. Um, you know, the family always asks, well, how do I, how do I improve their insight? Because if you, don't, if you don't see it, you can't produce change. And really, it's, it's time um, and, and giving direct, concrete feedback. So uh, um, in the cognitive rehab program at, at Kessler, um, the therapists, they have patients assemble this three-dimensional doghouse. And they ask patients, you know, how long do you think it's going to take you to assemble that? And they'll say, oh, 20 minutes, I got it. And, and they assemble it, they time them, and it took two hours. Um, and, and pointing out that discrepancy, that pre-appraisal and the discrepancy is something that helps build, build awareness. And, and again, you, know, you want to remember, though, that there's this inverse relationship between awareness and mood. So if people aren't aware, they're almost in this state of pleasant confusion. But as you chip away at that awareness, the, the mood lowers. And so again, important to educate family that, you know, monitor mood because, you know, that, that's going to be the result of increased awareness. They become more in tune that there are changes and uh, the extent of, of how their life has been changed. Cognitive impairment, so people have memory deficits. They may forget, you know, meetings or important uh, appointments, and others can misinterpret this as being just neglectful or they didn't, they didn't care or, you know, are disinterested. So, you know, we, in sum, we've, we've talked about, you know, a lot has changed for, for, the, for the patient, a lot has changed for the family in line with that both and thinking, you know, these relationships are both different than prior and life can still have meaning. So in closing, I want you to consider this, this poem as a message and uh, sort of a way for our patients and their families to shift the perspective 
that they have after brain injury. It's called Welcome to Holland by Emily Kingsley. Imagine that you're planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make wonderful plans. The Colosseum, the Michelangelo David, the gondolas in Venice. You may learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The flight attendant comes and says, welcome to Holland. Holland, you say? What do you mean, Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life, I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They've landed in Holland, and there you must stay. The important thing is that they haven't taken you to a horrible, disgusting, filthy place full of pestilence, famine, and disease. It's just a different place. So you must go out and buy new guidebooks, and you must learn a whole new language, and you will meet a whole new group of people you would have never met. It's just a different place. It's a little slower paced than Italy, less flashy than Italy, but after you've been there for a while and you catch your breath, you look around, and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills, Holland has tulips, Holland even has Rembrandts. But everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy, and they're all bragging about a wonderful time they had there, and for the rest of your life, you will say, yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. And the pain of that will never, ever go away because the loss of that dream is a very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things about Holland. And I want to thank you for your attention. For more information about Kessler Foundation and its researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That is K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.